Hey, everybody, Elizabeth here. Before we get into today's episode, I wanted to make sure that you know registration is currently open for our Spring Strong Foundations cohort. Strong Foundations is a five-week strength building program brought to you by me and Morgan Bungers. Coach Morgan Bungers is one of the best, most effective strength training coaches in this country. He has worked with some of the most elite athletes in the world, and now he specializes working with people in their 40s, in their 50s, in their 60s who want everyday strength. And this is not about being able to push your suitcase into the overhead compartment on an airplane. We need to be consistently and effectively strength training if we want to maintain the strength of our immune system. Muscle is a critical part of our immune system. And if we are not actively maintaining our strength, we are losing it as we age. And that means we are losing the strength of our immune system. It's also a significant component of our overall metabolism, especially our carbohydrate metabolism. Muscle mass plays a huge role in energy, in mood, mental health, bone health, so many different things. This is just not optional, but a lot of us don't do it because we aren't sure what to do. We aren't sure what not to do. We aren't sure if we're moving well. We don't know how to accommodate for our physical limitations or our current level of fitness, and that is why you need a coach and you'd be hard-pressed to find one better than Morgan Bungers. Now, here's the thing about fitness programs. I've experienced this. My mom, who's in her 70s, has experienced this, where you buy a fitness program and then you're like, okay, but I I can't do that workout because I'm not fit enough or I don't have enough balance or I don't have that equipment or that hurts my knees or it hurts my back. And then you're sort of just left to figure it out yourself, which means we often don't do anything. The great thing about Strong Foundations is that Morgan and I are part of it every single day and you have an unlimited ability to ask us questions in a group setting or via direct message so that Morgan can help you scale for you, for whatever equipment you have, for the time that you have, for your fitness level, for your body and your physical limitations. Five weeks, there's two different tiers. There's a beginner intermediate tier. There's an intermediate advanced tier. The testimonials that we have received from our previous clients will blow your mind. You can check them out and also register for your spot by going to primalpotential.com forward slash strong foundation. Primalpotential.com forward slash strong foundation. If you are an alum, if you have been through strong foundations before, I've already emailed you a renewal link with a special renewal rate. So please use that. If you don't see that email, let me know. For the rest of you, primalpotential.com forward slash strong foundation. We start on May 13th. So grab your spot now. You will have these workouts for life. Four workouts a week for five weeks, two different tiers. So you've got 40 workouts total. Plus, there is a five-part series on your pelvic floor. That is an incredibly important part of your physical fitness, of your strength, of your core strength, of your overall health, of your ability to maintain functional mobility as you get older. We want you to be a part of this. You will not regret joining the Strong Foundations cohort. It is an incredible community. 
everybody needs to be consistently and effectively strength training. And if you're not, it's probably because you don't know how to make it work for you. And it can be made to work for you. It needs to be made to work for you. Primalpotential.com forward slash strong foundation to register now. Let's get into the episode. This is Primal Potential, and I am your host, Elizabeth Benton. Through education, motivation, and implementation, we will bridge the gap between knowing and doing so we can master fat loss naturally and help you reach your highest potential. Let's get started. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Primal Potential Podcast. I am Elizabeth Benton, and we are going to be talking about a serious and sort of heavy science topic today, a controversial one to uh, bring on the controversy. We are going to be talking about GMOs or genetically modified organisms. I will start by saying, you guys know if you've been listening to the show for a while, you know I'm not a purist, you know I'm not an alarmist, you know I'm not going to be the person that says, you know, don't touch another processed food or you're going to die. And I am not here to tell you that you can't eat GMOs or that you can or that you should. I just want to kind of talk about what they are, where they are, the pros and the cons and why they even came into being. And if you choose to avoid them, how you can go about doing so. Because sometimes even if we want to avoid them, it seems like they're everywhere. So is it even feasible? How can we go about it? Before we dive into the nuts and bolts, and you guys know I love the science stuff, I want to start with my thesis because many times when we talk about organic or we talk about toxins or we talk about GMOs, people think this is just too much. There's nothing I can eat. Everything's bad. What am I supposed to do? Or they become really freaked out and they start perseverating on everything that could be potentially harmful. And I think that's kind of a waste of energy. I will tell you that I am not a doctor. I am not a GMO expert. I certainly have an opinion. And what I choose to do for my health now is very different from what I chose to do when I was 350 pounds. My priorities from a from the standpoint of what should I be doing to improve my health, my priorities were very different at 350 pounds than they are now. Because at that point in time, it was like, dude, you need to lose some weight, right? Like the single best thing I could do for my health at that point was to start improving my food choices in a sustainable way, stop yo-yo dieting, because that was the biggest risk to my health. Now I'm at a very different position, right? I'm in a different place where some of the, what I would consider smaller rocks that at 350 pounds, I was like, yeah, don't talk to me about diet soda. Don't talk to me about GMOs. I've got lots and lots of weight to lose and that's my priority My perspective for my own personal journey has obviously changed because my, what I call big rocks, are very different. So I guess that's what leads me to my thesis. And I want to start with this so that you're not listening to what I think is a really fascinating discussion on GMOs. I don't want you listening to this going, oh my gosh, I need to throw everything away and now my big obsession has to be avoiding GMOs. That's really not what I want anybody to walk away from this podcast with. I personally think that I will benefit from paying more attention to avoiding GMOs, but I do not think this would have been my big rock several years ago. Might 
GMOs be dangerous to your health? Yes, they might be. But here is what is certainly dangerous to your health. Being overweight, eating too much sugar, overeating regardless of your body weight, not sleeping enough, having too much stress in your life. I am 10 bazillion percent certain that those things are dangerous and that most people would have significant health benefits from tackling those issues one at a time. Those things will absolutely improve your health. If you decide that you're going to be a GMO crusader, but you're overweight, you're eating too much sugar, you're not sleeping enough, and you're a huge ball of stress, I kind of think you're being penny-wise and pound-foolish. That's my opinion. So I do think that there is a time and a place to be educated about, concerned about GMOs, aware of where they're coming from, but I also think it depends on what your big rocks are. I think there's a lot of merit to improving your food choices first. Focusing on incorporating more whole foods first. Slowly work towards a healthier body composition, towards sleeping more, towards stressing less. And those will move the needle in huge ways. And I personally would argue those are bigger priorities. I do think there's merit in avoiding GMOs at the right time in the right priority. With that said, let's talk about what they are. You guys know I love the science-y stuff. And no matter what you decide to do with this information, I I do think that information is power. And I think that the more we know, the more potential we have for improvement and also advocacy if we decide to take that path. So GMO, most of us know, stands for genetically modified organisms, which when we break that down, the genes have been changed up, right? We're changing up the genetic makeup of a plant or an animal. So basically what happens is we take the genes from one plant or animal, bacteria or virus or actual plant or actual animal, and transfer it into another plant or animal or bacteria or virus. And it's primarily done, and I think the original intention was kind of to make food more available throughout the world, totally noble. It was done initially to make crops more resilient against environmental factors, right? To protect crops from frosts, from bugs, from bacteria and viruses. Also, to make them prettier, bigger, to make them grow faster so farmers could make more money, right? And lose less money. It's a good intention. I absolutely get that. I respect the intention completely. It's also not the whole story, right? It's fascinating. So, Let's use tomatoes as an example to sort of start about talking about the intention here and how we created some of this genetic modification. So most of us who have ever had like a cherry tomato plant or a small garden, we know that tomatoes don't withstand the cold temperatures very well. So let's imagine that you're a farmer and your primary crop is tomatoes and you go to bed one night and there's an unexpected frost and you wake up the next morning And half your crop is ruined because of that frost that came in overnight, right? Prior to genetic modification, that was the reality. You could have an unseasonably cold overnight and lose most of your money. That's financially devastating for a farmer. And of course, it impacts the downstream food supply. Not going to have as many tomatoes. The price of tomatoes is going to go up because there's fewer available. So, 
modifying or sort of protecting against those kinds of factors, it helps the farmer and it helps the market. There's more tomatoes available. They're more, they're more uh, affordable. All of those things are good. Well, here's, this is just fascinating to me. Ready? Arctic flounder, the fish, like really, truly the fish flounder. It can withstand very, very, very cold temperatures. It can swim and survive in like Arctic water. So here's what happened. The scientists isolated the gene in Arctic flounder that allows them to withstand these freezing cold temperatures. And they basically said, well, what would happen if we put this in a tomato? This particular gene for surviving cold temperatures, being able to thrive in cold temperatures. What if we put it in a tomato? What would happen? And I mean, in theory, that sounds really, really, really cool. But my inner science geek, because I just have these wheels turning all the time in my head, I'm like, wait. How do you even how do you even get this gene from a fish into a tomato? And like, I mean, I know enough about cell function to say, wouldn't the cell just reject it? Wouldn't the cell just say this is a foreign invader and not be like, oh, cool. We're now cold weather resistant. Right. We don't our cells don't just let stuff come into them. In fact, our cells are programmed basically and not, not just human cells, but cells in general, because we're not tomatoes, clearly. Like, if anybody wasn't sure, <laughs> if you're listening to this, I don't think you're a tomato. But cells in general, whether it's a plant cell or an animal cell, are basically designed to commit cellular suicide when big major things go wrong. And I would say if you're a tomato, getting the gene of Arctic flounder in your cell would be like a big major thing going wrong, right? You know, like being invaded by a fish when you're a tomato, <laughs> cellular suicide. So my question is like, why don't the cells of the tomato commit suicide? How, how does it happen that the tomato just welcomes in this genetic modification from a freaking fish? Well, that genetic modification, that DNA sequence, it has to sneak in. How do you sneak a genetic modification into a cell of another organism? The Trojan horse for these genetic variations almost all the time is bacteria, or virus, right? So these genetic modifications are basically inserted into a virus or a bacteria because those guys are incredible Trojan horses that can get into the cell and then boom, we made it happen. They snuck in. I'll give you another example. In the United States, about 85% of all the corn grown is genetically modified. So just to get a sense of, of how this works, in the case of GMO corn, the gene that is added is from a bacteria, okay? It's known as BT, right? BT. You've probably heard of BT toxin. That's what that's all about, right? So this bacteria from soil is naturally immune to herbicides. So Monsanto, the agricultural giant that's kind of at the forefront of this whole GMO movement, they wanted to take the DNA from this bacteria and they wanted to put it into the corn so that the corn was herbicide resistant, so that they could spray with lots and lots of herbicides without killing the corn, right? But if you just try and put the DNA, just the DNA from this bacteria into the corn plant, you can't. Nothing's going to happen. It's not just going to like integrate like, oh, yeah, here we go. No, it needs a carrier. So they took E. coli, the bacteria. 
and they cut chunks out of its DNA, right? So then, like in this little Petri dish, they combine the E. coli that's kind of incomplete now. It has these chunks taken out of its DNA with this herbicide-resistant bacterial DNA. And every once in a while, oops, it combined. That's what they wanted. That's what they went after. These occasional recombinations where the E. coli combined with this herbicide-resistant bacterial DNA. And then we have this like superbug. And that's what they wanted. So they were able to smuggle this, this herbicide-resistant bacterial DNA into the corn via E. coli, right? Now, as far as how does it get in there, there are multiple ways. How does it get into the cell? One of these ways is via electricity. So they apply electricity. They shock the plant cells, the corn cells in these cases, and it damages the cell wall. So there are like gaps in the cell wall so that these, these bacterial recombinations, the E. coli with the bacterial resistant or the herbicide resistant bacteria, Bt, gets into the cell as opposed to being rejected. So yeah, that works, but at what cost? Because now the cell wall is, is penetrable. These genetic modifications can get in, but what else can get in, right? We had this healthy corn and now we don't. We have damaged corn, right? Now, here's what gets even crazier. When this gene from the Bt bacterium is added, guess what happens? This genetic modification causes every cell in the corn to now produce and release its own pesticide. So the result of this genetic modification of corn with the Bt toxin creates a corn where every single cell in that corn produces its own pesticide. The benefit here is obvious. The corn grows without being attacked by bugs. You don't lose your corn harvest. When you do, that is devastating to the farmer. It impairs the food supply. It drives up the cost of the corn, right? I, I, I totally see the benefit. I'm sure you do too. But the flip side of that is, hey, so we added this gene from a bacteria to our corn that we eat. Corn is a food, a food for humans, a food for animals, right? In tons of processed foods. And this genetic modification creates a corn where every single cell in that corn emits its own pesticidal toxin. Every cell in the corn now emits toxins. That's like genetically modifying humans to secrete their own mosquito repellent. Every cell in your body just secretes toxins. I understand the purpose, but can that be good for you, for the environment, for the people around the cornfields breathing the air, right? Now, beyond the fact that the corn secretes its own pesticidal toxins, there's a really fascinating side-by-side -side nutritional comparison of non-GMO corn versus GMO corn, how the nutrient profile is different between the two, non-GMO and GMO. Uh, and I'm going to put that, that graphic up on the show notes at primalpotential.com. It's really, really interesting. Um, but it indicates things like 
non-GMO corn has seven times more manganese than GMO corn. Non-GMO corn has 437 times more calcium than GMO corn, 56 times more magnesium than GMO corn, all right? So that, that's another thing to consider too. How does this impact the nutrient profile? Oftentimes when we are doing genetic modifications for the appearance, like to make things brighter in color or bigger in size or more uniform in size, that really impairs the nutrient profile because they are bred for their physical appearance or maybe their durability, like how long it takes for them to spoil at the expense of the nutrient profile. The, the other thing to keep in mind is that the genes we are inserting into plants in the process of genetic modification they often come, most often, from bacteria and viruses that have never been in the human food supply. So we don't know the impact that they'll have long-term with repeated consumption. And we have to remember, you know, we're not just talking about like, oh, well, I don't have much corn on the cob. No, remember that almost all processed foods include GMO ingredients, genetically modified ingredients, right? And as I've shared with you guys before, and I, and I think this was in an episode that I did on like, when should you buy organic and, and things like that, or, or, or obesogens. I did a podcast on obesogens, but I shared a couple of times before on the show that one of the big problems, at least in the United States, is that the people who own this technology, the people who use this technology, like the agricultural giants like Monsanto, they don't have to prove that it's safe. That is not a burden of proof they have to meet before they move forward, right? And the other thing to consider is, well, you know, I know many of you might be thinking, well, what do the human studies show about consuming GMO foods? Well, here's the thing. Let's, let's imagine what it would look like if we wanted to do a, a true human study on is this dangerous or is this not? It's almost unethical to do so because we have this thesis that maybe this won't be good, but hey, you five folks over there, how about you eat a ton of GMO corn and like, let's see what happens, right? So what's done most often, because those studies could really be considered unethical, is that we do these long-term observational studies. And we look back over decades and say, these societies ate lots of GMO corn and these societies didn't. What's the difference, right? The challenge with that, though more ethical, is that we don't usually learn the impact often for decades. And so what's done instead are studies on animals, right? studies on, on mice and rats. And this Bt toxin that is in corn, it does disrupt the immune system in mice. And Monsanto's own research shows that rats and mice eating this GMO corn had liver damage and kidney damage, and it impaired their fertility. But obviously, the challenge there is we aren't rats and we aren't mice, okay? And so that's an important thing to consider. We look at this research that says, yeah, in rats and in mice, this is bad news, but uh, we're not rats and we're not mice, so we can't say because it's bad in rats and mice, it's bad in humans, but it is enough to go, wait, wait. So, I mean, just from a common sense perspective, we're putting viruses and bacteria into the food we eat. The genetic modification results in every cell in that food emitting an herbicidal toxin. Ah, 
I mean, from a common sense perspective, like I'm thinking that's probably not like really great for my health. Now, let's kind of switch gears here and talk about one of the most common things we hear about in this GMO discussion, and that is Roundup or Roundup Ready Crops. Roundup is an herbicide, an herbicide. And it's also, this is really important, we'll come back to this, but it's also an antibiotic. It's an antibiotic, so it kills bacteria, good bacteria and bad bacteria. The active ingredient in Roundup is glyphosate, glyphosate, okay? So when we look at a lot of the research done on Roundup, you're going to see it referring to glyphosate because that is the active ingredient. Now, initially in the 1950s, before Roundup, Glyphosate was used to clean the mineral residue out of industrial pipes. So I don't know how many of you have ever used like a real tea kettle, but you've probably noticed when you have that there's like this mineral buildup after a while. Well, that's what glyphosate would do. It would bust up mineral buildup. And so it was used to clean industrial pipes. Well, then somebody figured out, hey, this actually kills bacteria, right? And theorized that it would be more profitable to use as an herbicide than as a a pipe cleaner, basically. So in 1969, Monsanto bought the rights and had it patented as an herbicide. Now, scientists figured out how to genetically engineer things like corn and soy and grain so that they were resistant to this herbicide, to glyphosate, okay? So they would genetically engineer the corn, the soy, the grains, so that they could spray the fields with lots and lots and lots of this Roundup and kill off what they didn't want, but not kill off the soy, the grains, the corn, because they were quote unquote Roundup ready or resistant to this herbicide. So they could just douse this stuff and kill everything they didn't want, but it wouldn't kill the crop that was genetically modified to be resistant. So Roundup is the herbicide. Roundup ready crops are those that have been genetically modified to be resistant to this herbicide, okay? So when we look at the crops that are genetically modified, and and I'm looking, let's just talk first about the United States. About 92% of the corn in the United States is genetically modified. About 94% of the soybeans are genetically modified. About 94% of the cotton is genetically modified. Now, the reason that I mention soybeans and cotton, because you might be like, I don't eat soybeans and I don't eat cotton. But when you look at processed foods, almost all of your processed foods have ingredients derived from corn, soy, and cotton, okay? So when we look at processed foods, you can be almost guaranteed that they contain genetically modified ingredients. When we're looking at Canada, about 90% of the Canadian, or 98% of the Canadian grown canola is genetically modified, okay? When we look at sugar beets, which is one of the most common uh, sweeteners, especially in in processed foods, about 95% of the sugar beets in the United States are genetically modified, 
Okay. And then we see, you know, in, in terms of grocery stores, papaya, zucchini, summer squash, most of those things in grocery stores are going to be um, uh, genetically modified as well as most of the animal feed. Okay. Now, you might be thinking, well, I don't really eat processed foods uh, or um, I don't eat corn or I don't eat any of those things you just mentioned. And that's awesome. But it's not just corn, soy, cotton, and their derivatives that we need to be worried about. Here's something that's not talked about very often, and I consider it pretty, pretty um, disappointing. Many farmers will spray at the time of harvest, okay? So we're not talking necessarily about uh, GMOs here, but at the time of harvest, they will spray their grains and their seeds with Roundup, right, with this glyphosate, Cereal grains, beans, sunflower seeds, hemp, they will, they will spray them at harvest to kill them. They do that because it makes the harvest easier. It's called chemical drying or desiccation. It not only kills weeds, but it basically makes their harvest easier. They're about to harvest it, so it's okay if it starts to die off. It makes the harvesting process easier. And so that's, that's not going to be labeled, even though labeling of GMOs is not required in the United States, but that's not going to be labeled as something that's GMO because that's not the issue here. They're killing it intentionally with Roundup at harvest to make the harvest easier. We're looking at things like, again, cereal grains, beans, sunflower seeds, hemp. And one of the challenges is that just like if we were to take, um, say, the same antibiotic over and over and over and over and over again, we would become resistant to it. Well, lots of plants become resistant to glyphosate. And so what happens is that more and more and more and more has to be used to get the same effect. And so what we're seeing in the food supply year after year is more and more glyphosate, more and more glyphosate. Remember that glyphosate is the active ingredient in Roundup, one of the most common herbicides out there, which don't forget, what is it also? It is also an antibiotic. What's frustrating is in the United States, glyphosate is not very well monitored. We do not keep a close eye on it and regulate its presence in the food supply. Even though other chemicals are very much tightly regulated, glyphosate isn't really. And year after year, the EPA in the U.S. and Health Canada are increasing the allowable amount of Glyphosate. So every crop has a different allowable limit. Right now, sugar is at about 10 parts per million. Soy and canola are at about 20 parts per million. Again, this is the allowable limit and it's not very well regulated or enforced. Cereals and grains have an allowable limit of 30 parts per million. And animal feed has an allowable limit of 400 parts per million. Think about what that means when you then consume the animals or the animal byproducts. Now, these numbers used to be seen as extremes, but now they're normal and they're allowable because year after year, these limits are increased. Here's what's crazy. Remember, those are the allowable limits when we're, when we're talking about glyphosate. Remember that glyphosate is an antibiotic as well as an herbicide. As little as one, one part per million has been shown to kill all the gut bacteria, good and bad, in animals. One part per million. The allowable limit 
in sugar is 10 parts per million. But how many times in a day do you consume sugar? How many servings are you having of sugar? The allowable limit in soy and canola products is 20 parts per million. In cereals and grains, 30. And in animal feed, 400 parts per million. And one part per million has been shown to destroy all the gut bacteria, good and bad, in animals, right? Because it's an herbicide, but it's also an antibiotic. Endocrine disruption, hormone disruption. Your endocrine system is the system in your body that really uh, produces and maintains your hormone balance. Endocrine disruption begins at just one half of one part per million. And just a few part per million of glyphosate can trigger inflammation, oxidative stress, and DNA damage. Recently, the World Health Organization um, asked 17 senior toxicology experts from around the world to determine whether or not glyphosate was safe. These 17 senior toxicology experts from around the world classified glyphosate as a probable human carcinogen. Carcinogens are agents that cause cancer. 17 of these senior toxicology experts said, yep, it is probably a carcinogen in humans, a probable carcinogen. Yet, it is allowed in fairly substantial amounts and growing amounts in our food supply. Monsanto says, Uh, that glyphosate and Roundup, remember it's theirs, they own the patent, they say that it will not build up or accumulate in human or animal tissues, but the science says otherwise. It doesn't degrade in soil and it appears to accumulate in every organ in both humans and animals. And flags started to be raised about this when the animals who were being fed Roundup-ready crops, crops that were sprayed with Roundup, started to get sick, right? One of the things we have to keep in mind. Remember at the top of the show, I shared that GMOs are created when we take the gene from one plant or animal or virus and transfer it into another plant or animal or virus or bacteria. When we do that, because of the way that DNA functions, new proteins are created because your DNA basically instructs your bodies on what proteins to create. And so when we change the DNA, we change the proteins that are created. And we just don't know how our bodies will respond to new proteins. There might be no reaction. Or it might see it as something foreign and launch an immune response, right? So this new-to-human protein might trigger allergies or initiate disease. We just don't know. Now, I never use this show to get political, but this is a political issue because the big agricultural giants, they're pumping money into the system that creates the legislation about the use of these of these herbicides. And so it is political. There's an organization called the Institute for Responsible Technology. And they share some really interesting behind-the-scenes political information about GMOs. And I'll read a quick excerpt on something that they wrote. It says, in 1992, the Food and Drug Administration claimed that they had no information showing that genetically modified foods were substantially different from conventionally grown foods. Therefore, they are safe to eat and absolutely no safety studies are required. So basically, in 1992, they said, we don't need, we don't need to do any safety studies on these genetically modified foods. Like, there, there's, no, there's no thing that would indicate that we should look at the safety of these, which just kind of blows my mind. But here's the thing. 
Internal memos, gotta love this, internal memos were made public after a lawsuit that basically indicated or showed, proved that there were political appointees who were told to promote GMOs because of money coming in from the big agricultural giants. The FDA official who was in charge of creating this policy that said no safety studies are required, that FDA official was a former attorney for Monsanto and then later was the vice president of Monsanto. Now, what these internal memos that became public after a lawsuit showed is that the FDA scientists repeatedly warned that genetically modified foods could create unpredictable and and hard to detect side effects, including but not limited to allergies, toxins, um, disease origination or, or, or manifestations, nutritional problems, nutritional deficiencies, and they fought for long-term safety studies, but they were ignored. Now, I, I am not taking a political stance here, but when we look in the United States at what's happening with the presidential election, it does have an impact on GMOs. And both candidates right now um, have sort of touched their toe to this, some in more more ways than other. Monsanto is a major donor to the Clinton Foundation. Uh, They have donated anywhere between half a million and a million dollars. Dow Chemical, another one of the major GMO players, uh, donated anywhere between one million and five million, and those are according to the Clinton Foundation financial disclosures. Uh, One of the top campaign operatives uh, for uh, the for Hillary Clinton's campaign is a former Monsanto lobbyist. Um, And way, way, way back when uh, Clinton worked for the Rose Law Firm, which represented Monsanto. Um, And the the other thing to keep in mind, and I'm going to talk about Trump's little touching his toe to Monsanto, too. Um, Clinton has advised Monsanto to be careful with their language. And, and according to what was released from, from what, what she coached them on, she said, genetically modified sounds Frankensteinish, and drought resistance sounds like something you'd want. So be careful that you don't raise these red flags. But even Donald Trump, who doesn't really seem to back down to anybody, back down to Monsanto. It's actually kind of funny. And again, I'm not making a political pitch here. I just want to help everybody see that this is very much a political issue because it's a financial issue. And that's why we are where we are right now, because you might be wondering, like, how the heck is this involved in the food supply because of money and because of politics? Like, that's just the reality of the situation. So back in the primary, when Ben Carson was leading in the Iowa polls, Trump, who, you know, got to love his tweets, right? He said he sent out a tweet that said, Carson's leading in Iowa, too much Monsanto in the corn must affect people's brains, right? But then he deleted the tweet. He's not afraid to insult the people from Iowa, and he's not afraid to insult pretty much anybody but Monsanto and Monsanto money. That's another story, and the tweet came down. There has been no requirement in the United States to require labeling of GMOs. There's been legislation, but it has not passed in the U.S. It has in many other countries. So the question becomes, if you want to avoid them, how do you do that? 
One of the easiest ways, and by easy, I guess I mean simple and straightforward, it's certainly not an easy thing in practice, is to avoid processed foods. They almost always have genetically modified ingredients. Another way to avoid them is to buy foods and ingredients that are labeled USDA certified organic. Or, of course, that come from a local grower that you trust who does not use herbicides. USDA certified crops cannot be sprayed with glyphosate at any stage of growing, harvesting, or drying, okay? And none of the ingredients in USDA certified organic products can be genetically engineered. I'm going to link up on the show notes over at primalpotential.com to a non-GMO shopping guide uh, that comes from the Institute for Responsible Technology. And it's kind of a long list, but what the list does is it goes through and it says, you know, these are these are the ingredients that if you see on a label, basically means that it came from something that had a genetically modified source, unless the product is labeled USDA certified organic or labeled non-GMO. So when we're talking about aspartame, remember, because those things come from, from corn a lot of time. Uh, so NutraSweet, Equal, all of those kinds of things indicate GMO. Canola oil, caramel color, citric acid, uh, condensed milk, confectioner's sugar, corn flour, anything basically coming from corn in a processed food preparation unless otherwise labeled, dextrin, dextrose, uh, equal, food starch, fructose in any form, because remember, that comes from corn. I could go on and on and on, but I'm going to link up to this list uh, in the show notes over at primalpotential.com. But I want to go back to what I said at the very beginning, because I understand that many people feel sort of like, oh my gosh, I need to stay away from these things. What we know with 100% certainty is not good for your health is being overweight, is consuming too many processed foods, is eating foods that drive a significant blood sugar response or insulin reaction. So start where it matters most before you get all like crusader about things like organic or GMO. I'm not saying they don't matter. What I'm suggesting is there might be things in your journey that matter more. And I don't want anybody to become an alarmist or a purist because I just don't think it will help you in the long run. So I personally will be paying more attention to this because it's appropriate for where I am in my journey, but it wasn't a few years ago, and there's nothing wrong with that. But I do think understanding it is really valuable because then when it becomes a political issue, we understand the situation a little bit more and we can act accordingly. We do have a voice. And the last thing I'll say about the political side of things is you might think you can't make much of a difference, but let me tell you what you do. Every single time you pull out a dollar bill or your debit card or your credit card, every single time you spend money on food, you vote with your wallet. A lot of times we feel powerless because we don't have the millions of dollars to donate to these foundations and make a difference, and we probably never will, and that's fine. But what you have that is more powerful than that, what we all have that is more powerful than that, you vote with your wallet every single time. If you decide to support local farmers when you can, you vote with your wallet. If you don't have local farmers near you or you don't have a local farmer's market near you, there are local farms who sell their products online and you can support them that way. You vote with your wallet every single time you buy a box of Cheez-Its, you are supporting 
GMO agriculture. Every time you purchase processed foods, and you know, like I said, it might not be your journey to fight right now. It might not be the big rock you're tackling, but I want everybody to understand who thinks like, oh, well, I just can't win against this big political machine. That's crap because every single one of us average schmoes we vote with our wallet hundreds of times a week in what we order at restaurants, in what restaurants we go to, in what grocery stores we go to, and what food products we buy. You, No matter you, whether you have a $100 a week grocery budget, a $1,000 a week grocery budget, or a $25 a week grocery budget, you are voting. No matter how much money you have to spend on groceries, you don't have to spend it on diet soda. You don't have to spend it on sugar-free gum that comes, you know, with sweeteners that come from this GMO corn or whatever it is. No matter who you are in your journey or where you are in your journey, you vote every time you spend 50 cents or a dollar or a hundred dollars. Every single time you make a transaction for food, you are casting a vote in support of agricultural practices you believe in or ag agricultural practices you don't believe in. So enough of that like little tirade there. What I ate yesterday, it was random because I spent an awful lot of time in my car yesterday, hours and hours and hours. Um, before my workout, I had a handful of cashews. After my workout, I had Greek yogurt with cacao that I ate in the car. Um, and then I had a bag of hazelnuts in my car that I munched on for several hours because I was away from home and I was hungry. Then when I got home, I ordered the most awful Mexican food I've ever had. I didn't want to go anywhere. I didn't want to cook anything. It was a bad, bad, bad choice. Um, the chicken was terrible. The steak was terrible. I wanted fajitas. I, like, you can't mess up meat and veggies, but they did. So I ate mostly the guacamole and the salsa and the sour cream, and I was disappointed, and I will never, ever, ever eat there again. And I might even leave a crappy review. I might. I just might because it was that bad. Anyway, I hope you guys found this episode helpful. If you have questions uh, and you think that there should be a follow-up episode, put them on the show notes. Uh, you can comment on the show notes over at primalpotential.com and uh, we'll see what we can do to add more clarity to what I think is a really important topic. But remember, don't get lost in the weeds and focus on what is a big rock for you. Talk to you guys soon. Have a great day. Are you ready to move beyond listening and learning and really change your life? Really live into your highest potential instead of just wishing for it and hoping something clicks? I want to do that with you. And that's why this fall, I'm hosting the first ever Primal Potential Women's Transformation Weekend, Ascend, in downtown Nashville, Tennessee, November 3rd through the 5th. It will be a small group, but you can get your ticket and learn all the details at primalpotential.com forward slash ascend or by listening to episode 203 of the Primal Potential podcast. Here's what I know. Ascend will change your life and I would love to have you join me. See you this fall. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.